0: Um, so, let's get started with our study of the Baptist Faith and Message. Um, it deserves a little bit of explanation, what is the Baptist Faith and Message? The Baptist Faith and Message is our statement of faith. And as has been pointed out, it's not very long. If you was to read the whole thing in one sitting, it would take you five minutes minutes, maybe less than that even. It's just a a series essentially of 21 statements. Um, And so this study is broken up into 21 chapters. And so what the study intends to do is kind of explain the implications of what's going on here um, so that we have a little bit more awareness of of what we as Baptists actually believe. What makes us Baptist, okay? Um, and, And so that's what that's what we'll be looking at um, over the course of several weeks here. Sometimes we might try to combine one or two articles, but sometimes we'll keep them separate. So the sp- the scriptures is what we'll be talking about today. The Baptist Faith and Message as it stands now was revised uh, in, in the year 2000. Um, it has went through a few editions as it's went along, just like any good statement of faith does. The Bible does not need to be edited or have new editions, but as we encounter different um, sometimes issues within the church, sometimes actual heresies. Sometimes we have to strengthen our statement of faith. Uh, That happened with what we know as like the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed. All of those are kind of the same statement, but they were strengthened to kind of guard against certain types of heresy throughout, um, throughout early church history. And so the same can be said even for the Baptist faith and message. As we have encountered problems, we have kind of stood against those problems by strengthening our statement of faith uh, on different articles. And this one, the one that we take up this morning, is no exception, this evening, is no exception. Um, the scriptures is something that was quite a ordeal for Baptists for quite some time, and so I'll, I'll share a little bit about that, because that's not in your book. Um, they have different stories, and, and I'll let you read their stories, but... Um, Let's start by actually reading Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the Scriptures. It says The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony of Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation." Okay, and so to almost immediately back that up, definitely to back up the beginning and the strong you know, opening to this statement, um, your book records 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, which says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, when it says all Scripture... You know, 2 Timothy was one of the later books written in the New Testament, later letters written in the New Testament. And so Paul certainly had in view when he said that all of the Old Testament, but it's very likely that he had in view anything that had been accepted by that point as Scripture. So he says when all Scripture, he says it is inspired by God. It's actually that word inspired is a compound word in the original language. It means God breathed. And so it is just like... When you speak, if you hold your hand up to your mouth, you can feel breath coming out. That is the word picture in the original language, meaning these are the words of God. And so when we hold the Bible, we hold the words of God. That's very important for us to keep that in mind as we go along. So what we're talking about and and another way to refer to the bible is revelation yes there's a book in the bible at the end called revelation but the whole thing is also god's revelation god has chosen to speak to us as humans in two ways one way is what we call general revelation general revelation is what god has shown us in this world it is everything that can be known about god from his creation Every creation speaks to its creator. So if you look at something and it looks like it's sloppy, well, then there was a sloppy creator involved in that. If you look at something and it looks perfect and it looks pristine, it looks like it's made with quality and care and concern, then that tells you a lot about the creator as well. And so when we look at this world, we can learn some things about God. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we were preaching through this, but in Romans chapter 1, we actually see... Uh, what it talks about, where it talks about general revelation in the specific revelation, and I'll get to that in a minute. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's mad. What's he mad about? He's mad that they're suppressing the truth. What truth? Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And these things that have been made, uh, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so, what Paul's saying there is that God can be seen in creation. You can see his power and you can see his divine nature. You can see his strength, but also his godliness in what he has made. And so that is an important thing for us to understand. That is general revelation. In other words, it's available to everyone. Every person on earth is without excuse. They should recognize that there is a powerful, creative God. And I really believe that everybody does know this. Although they don't want to admit it, I believe that everybody knows that there is, there is something about this world that, that, that indicates that it's not some cosmic accident. If you really go along with what science is currently saying, you have to believe that in, in in miracles greater than anything the Bible ever asks you to believe, mathematical anomalies just galore in other in order for there to be a inhabitable world, a, a blue-green world for us to live in. And really, as far out as, as scientists have went and as far out as telescopes have looked, as far out as anybody can tell, there's not another world like this anywhere in the universe. And so The fact that we hit the cosmic lottery, so to speak, and and, and live in this place, we evolved from lesser beings to live here, that requires a whole lot more faith than looking at a creation and saying there must be a creator. Because that's what it is. And that's what Paul says. And Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteous men who suppress that truth. So anyone who says that God is not real that he did not create this world, that this world is not a creation. Anyone that, that targets humanity and says that we didn't come from God and the and, and design of God, but rather we evolved from lesser beings into what we are now, that person is suppressing the truth of God and God's wrath is revealed against them. Now... We went through kind of the process of this, and and what does God's wrath being revealed to them mean? It means that their society is going to degrade into immorality, their society is going to degrade into chaos, and ultimately they are going to become a people that are unrecognizable from what God originally intended. Haven't we seen that come out, and haven't we seen that come into play? So, the other kind of revelation is... Specific revelation, okay? And so God God speaks to all of us in the way that he has created the world and what we can learn about God. The other way that God speaks to us is specific revelation. And what that means, or special revelation, and what that means is the word of God itself. This book, okay? So when we talk about special revelation, um, what we're not saying is someone coming along and saying, you know, God told me last night, and then fill in the blank. God told me this morning, and then fill in the blank. That's not special revelation. That's something else. Um, special revelation is the Word of God. It is what God breathed. And this is the complete, this, the way Baptists believe, this is the complete special revelation of God. We don't believe that God is going to add to this anymore. That's just not what we believe personally. And so we'll, get, we'll talk about some of the ramifications of that a little bit later. Um, but that is what we believe, is that God has presented this. And so special revelation is the Bible. Special revelation is any book of the Bible. Special revelation is what God says in his word. And so that helps us to understand general revelation, what God has revealed about himself in his creation. Special revelation, what God has revealed about himself in his word. And so we must remember always... The Bible does have purposes. It does have certain things that it's trying to achieve, or not trying, certain things that it will achieve. The Bible will achieve in introducing you to God. It will reveal God to you. So that's an important thing that we have to remember, is that the Bible is going to reveal God to you. It's not just a catalog of books. It's not just history. It's not just geography. It's not just you know, uh, stories and and, and proverbs and songs and things like that. It is revealing God to us, and so that's an important thing for us to remember. So, the authorship of the Bible is kind of the next thing that the the book takes up, and it's definitely something that we need to address. Who wrote the Bible? Um, We know that it's made up of 66 books. We know that there are conservatively 30 to 40 different authors, Uh, We recognize um, that a lot of different people over a a period of time contributed to this book. But what do we believe about that? Do we believe um, that people were kind of, sort of, inspired? In other words, uh, like we say William Shakespeare, for example, is, is inspired, and he wrote Romeo and Juliet or Midsummer Night's Dream or things like that. Do we believe that the people that wrote the Bible were just kind of inspired or enlightened or motivated and they put down, let's say, history or they put down a poem or they put down their memories of Jesus or what have you. Is that what we believe? So dynamic inspiration essentially is that God gave the humans Kind of like the basic resources that they needed. In other words, they were able to um, they were able to remember things. They had certain talents, they had certain skills, and they were able to put things down. And so the, the the dependency would be more on the human than it would be on the 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 inspiration of God at that point. So that is one way that people believe. Is some people believe in dynamic inspiration? That's not what Baptists believe. The other uh, thing that some people believe is what would be called dictation theory. Uh, the idea that, that when God kind of took over a person um, and, and, and he had them write word for word what he wanted, um, but they were passive. There was none of their personality passed through, none of, none of their character passed through, none of their experiences passed through. It was all uh, just God writing these things down. In other words, it was almost like God took away their free will, took away their personality in that moment and just had them write. Um, That doesn't seem to be the case either because when we read, we see very distinct personalities and writing styles and we see creativity in the Bible, things that seem to indicate that there was some part of that person that was very active while they were writing the Bible. If you read, for example, some of the things that John wrote and then you turn around and read some of the things that Paul wrote, they're drastically different. They're very, very different things all and, and And when you look at John, John was so diverse. So when he writes the gospel uh, of John, he is writing in what we would call, you know, prose. And so he's telling you what happened with Jesus, but he's also kind of narrating it as he goes. But when you look at Revelation, well, that is written in apocalyptic literature. It's a whole different genre, but he was able to master that and present it in a way that people could, could read it and understand it. So we can definitely see personality there. And so what Baptists have believed uh, over the years is what's called verbal plenary theory, verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And what that means is that we believe that God inspired the words so every word does, in fact, matter. Every word of God matters because every word in the Bible is God's word. But also plenary, which means fully. In other words, so it wasn't just the general idea that God gave to Moses when he was recording the first five book of the Bible. It was everything that Moses needed to say. And only God can do something like this in keeping with the personality, in keeping with the individual, without overriding who they are, God inspired every word. So every word is fully inspired by God. It is exactly the message that God wanted to convey. One reason that this has to be so clear is that when people begin to read the Bible and they begin to interpret the Bible, which is the most dangerous step in all of Bible study, when you begin to interpret the Bible, that's where it gets kind of dangerous because then you're, you're, you're either speaking the words of God in, in plain language or in, in expanded language, or you're putting words in God's mouth. So interpreting the Bible is where everything gets really dangerous. So if, if, if people believe that there's a whole lot of human element and a little bit of God then they're going to take all kinds of liberties with that, all kinds of liberties. And then then you're you're not going to have any kind of consistency with what it is. So the Bible is, and it pains me to say this, but the Bible is in, in, in a very important way like math, right? So in a math problem, there might be multiple ways that you can do that problem, but there's supposed to be one answer, right? And when you get down to the end of it, you're supposed to have one answer, And that's what we have to understand with the Bible. For years and years and years, people have sat in a circle with a Bible in their lap and they've said, okay, they read a passage, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? Well, one of my college professors called that pooled ignorance. Um, The Bible can mean one thing. It is one word, one revelation from God. It can mean one thing. It can have many applications. In other words, so when you take, for example, uh, one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible, um, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." Now, what does that really mean? That w- when you look at it in context, what it means, Paul has talked about the fact that he has he has lived free, uh, and he is he has been imprisoned. He has had. Plenty, it has all of his needs met, and he's had not all of his needs met. And so he kind of sums that up by saying, I have learned to endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so what this is not, this is not a Bible verse that you read right before some football team goes out and plays a game. That's not what that's about. What this is about is when a Christian is going through suffering, when they're going through a hard time, when they're being, you know, in some way mistreated, you remind them that in Christ... We can endure this. In fact, we can endure all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so interpretation is what it actually means. It means that we can endure anything when we have Christ with us. We can not endure anything without him, but we can endure with Christ. Application could be any number of things. Are you going through a medical problem? Well, this applies to that. Um, Are you going through a financial problem? Well, this applies to that. Are you going through persecution? Well, this applies to that. Have you lost a loved one? This applies to that. So application can be very multiple, but meaning has to be one thing. Otherwise, it means nothing. If it means more than one thing, it means nothing at all. And so that's what we have to realize. So that is why verbal plenary inspiration is so important because every word is fully God's word. Yes, it does have the personality of the writer. Yes, it is, you know, an individual wrote this, but it was God's hand on them, directing them, breathing the words out. So that's what we have to understand when we think about God being the author. Yes, he used individuals, but he was the one controlling what went down on that page. And so that is very, very important um, for us to recognize. Now, um, one of the next things that your, your book talks about is, is the fact uh, that the Bible has salvation for its end. Salvation is the purpose. In fact, one of the writers, again, John, uh, when he was writing his gospel, um, he said, you know, Jesus did this, he did many other things. You could fill up libraries all over the world with what Jesus did, but these signs were recorded so that you may know that he is the Christ, and that in believing, you may become saved. 1 John is all about knowing that you can be saved. The point of the Bible is to help us understand how we get from where we are when we first encounter the Bible to God. So it's going to tell you about your sin, it's going to explain the depth and the depravity of your sin, it's going to show you the Savior in Jesus Christ, it's going to help you to understand how you can believe in Him, and once you believe in Him you can be saved. It even paints the picture all the way through to the end, to, to, to Revelation and to that, that eternal city that, Jesus will, or that God will establish on earth, it paints the whole picture for us. So the point of the Bible is to help us understand how we are to be saved. So God is revealing Himself and helping us to understand how we can be saved. So that is what that is what the Bible is is, is about, so to speak. Um, so we have to understand that. When we understand that, that helps us to grasp what the what individual passages mean. Uh, because the Bible is not going to do anything. Just everything. So, for example, the Bible is not supposed to be strictly a resource. People use the Bible as a resource sometimes. I, I've seen it very, very often where people take Bible verses and it's almost like they have an arsenal. And they use the Bible verses and they use, you know, different passages for different things. And it, but it's like a tool for them. Well, that's not what the Bible is intended to be. It is a message, not a tool. And it isn't supposed to be broke up and used its different parts for different reasons. It's not for that. Now, there are other uses for the Bible besides salvation. So there are things that the Bible has told us, or or the Word of God has told us, that it is good for. We read it at the very beginning. So the Bible is good for teaching. Okay, so that's one thing that's very, very important. It's, it's a big part of my ministry is teaching what the Bible actually says. You know, there, there are people that are better speakers than I am, um, but a wonderful thing about the Bible is if you're teaching it, you're not doing wrong. You, you may not be the best speaker, you may not have the funniest jokes, you may not have the best illustrations, but if you're teaching the Bible, you're doing something right because that's what it's for. And so it is for teaching us. It, it can teach us... The history when it reveals it. It can teach us geography when it reveals it. It can teach us about the Israelites. It can teach us about Jesus. It can teach us about the apostles. Whatever is there, you can learn it because the Bible is good for teaching. Another thing it's good for is rebuking. There are times when people need to be rebuked. Now, I would say that out of 10 times, 9 times that we rebuke need to be Christians. Maybe one time you find a reason to rebuke a lost person, but for the most part rebuking is about Christians. Because the standards that are upheld or presented in the Bible, those are not standards that the lost can live by. That goes back to the original purpose of the Bible with salvation for its end. That is the purpose of the Bible is for us to be saved. So once we are saved, the Bible is good for rebuking. Um, and it's important. Paul put that on his list, teaching, rebuking. I mean, he, he listed them one, two. And the reason he did is because we have to realize that, that Christians are still humans. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall in this end. We're supposed to live in community. And when we live in community, our Christian brothers and sisters hold us accountable. They rebuke us when we fall into error. That is an important, thing, a very important thing, and it's part of what the Bible can do, because it, in plain language, tells us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what we should be doing, and it helps us very much um, in in, in those terms. Correcting. Correcting would be more like theological errors, uh, misunderstandings, um, not quite grasping what the word means. That would be correcting. Uh, and, and, And one way that the Bible corrects us, and it's very important for us to learn this, is that for every complicated passage in the Bible, there are simple passages. So for everything that the Bible says that, that you're like, huh? There's another one that makes you go, oh, I understand. And so that's what we need to look for is those passages that help us to understand. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Not, not, don't use anything else to help you interpret the Bible. It's not going to help you in the long run. And, so, you know, I, I have seen um, all kinds of, uh, of re- really bad biblical interpretation, uh, especially in churches, um, because people would say, well, Pastor so-and-so said... And then that meant that this verse has to mean this. That's not okay. What does the Bible say? Always trust what the Bible says. I've heard people reference old respected pastors. I've heard people reference their mothers and their grandmothers and their grandparents and things like that. And a lineage of faith is very, very important but we can understand the Word of God for ourselves. And that's what's important is understanding the Word of God. So we need to recognize that the Bible can correct us, especially when we're wrong about the Bible. Training in righteousness. The Bible does actually teach us how to be righteous and that's a very important aspect of the Christian life. Because if we don't live in a righteous way, yes, we're saved, Jesus saves us, he makes us righteous. But if we don't live in a righteous way, then the world's not gonna be able to tell the difference between us and them. If they can't tell the difference between us and them, they're certainly not going to believe when we say that Jesus changes our lives. And then equipping for good works. Um, To my knowledge, Jesus has never saved any individual to sit in a pew for the rest of their lives. He equips us. He puts us to work. He saves us for a purpose. We are encouragers. We are prayer warriors. We are missionaries. We are evangelists. We are administrators. We are any number of things, but we're not spectators. He he didn't save you to be a spectator. He saved you to be something else. And so the Bible does equip us to do good works. So, truth without any mixture of error is another big statement in the Southern Baptist faith and message, and it is one uh, that we had to fight for. Um, We had a pretty major fight from roughly the 1950s, uh, you might say, all the way through the 1990s, although by the early 90s, it was pretty much settled. Um, People believed that there were errors in the Bible, People that taught in seminaries, people that um, had positions of power within the Southern Baptist Convention, thought that there were mistakes in the Bible. Um, you might be familiar with the name Broadman. Broadman is kind of one of our publishing labels. We 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 call it different things: Broadman and Holman, Holman, Broadman. We have all kinds of different little labels, and um, in the it may have been commissioned in the 40s, even. Uh, but Broadman began to put out a series of commentaries. Um, the Broadman Baptist Commentary Series, I believe, is what they call it. Or maybe they didn't have the word Baptist in it, Broadman Commentaries. Um, and, you know, many churches have some of these in their church libraries even to this day. Well, the Genesis, the original, like the, the very beginning, uh, first couple of chapters of Genesis, that edition. Created a firestorm in Southern Baptist circles because what it did is it presented many different options for how to interpret um, the seven days of creation, uh, and it you when you read it you felt like it was leaning towards anything except a literal seven days. Uh, it began to question um, the the uh, specific correctness of God's word, um, and you know, what happened and and and. This actually, there was another series that came out and started coming out in the 90s. A lot of churches actually subscribed to these commentaries. And so they would come to the church, you know, and everybody would be excited. We got our new commentary and people would, you know, sit and look through it and study through it and that kind of thing. People started finding this information where it was questioning and throwing doubt on, you know, the seven days of creation. It was a a pretty big deal. Um, This was one of the first times that people in the pew realized that people in the seminaries questioned what God's Word actually said. And so it created some issues. Um, and so what eventually happened um, is, is that people began to recognize the only way to create real change in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and, and basically take us away from a liberal drift was to, to win at the very top, to, to always select the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Knowing what I know now about the politics within the Southern Baptist Convention, I know that there was probably some things that weren't so great about this, but what it's now called is the conservative resurgence. Um, Those that lost call it the fundamentalist takeover, um, because you know there's always two sides to every story. Uh, But eventually what happened starting in like 1979 through at least 1999, um, a particular group Um, selected a candidate to be uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention and every year they won. And every year they won. They had Adrian Rogers, they had, um, well, anyway, they they had a lot of guys that that became president and each one of them believed that the Bible was truth without any mixture of error. Uh, It was very very important um, to kind of get this going because the Southern Baptist Convention president makes some appointments that only he can make. And so it took 20 years of appointments to kind of get us to a point where our seminaries were conservative again, to a point where, you know, you're churning out preachers that believe the Bible and instead of question the Bible. And so there's a lot of those guys that are running around the graduated seminary, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They do still ask questions about the Bible. They still ask questions about what it actually. Um, wh- where are the errors at? Now, one problem that I've always had with someone saying, "Well, there are errors in the Bible. Where are they? And who is qualified to determine what is truth and what is error?" So, if if you say that the Bible has errors in it, that means that you've got to be wise enough to identify those errors. If God's the author, who's His editor? Who's smarter than God to be able to edit his work and say where the mistakes are? And that's the really interesting thing about the, the Baptist version of a liberal. is The Baptist version of a liberal is still going to believe that the Bible is God-inspired, but they're also going to think that it has errors in it. And that makes no sense to me at all. That just doesn't, that doesn't add up at all. So who's going to be God's editor and determine where the errors are? Pretty major problem there. Um, because if there can be errors, what we have to realize is that the whole Bible then kind of begins to fall down. Um, there's a quote in one of the margins. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So on page 16, there in the margin, there's, this, uh, there's this, this quote from Adrian Rogers. And he says, if you read the Old Testament, you will find phrases like the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God, God spoke, the Lord said, use 3,808 times. If the Bible is not the word of God, it is is—it is the biggest bundle of lies that has ever come to planet Earth. The Bible is truth. Absolutely. So that's what we have to recognize, is that the Bible is truth. There are no errors in it. People like to point out errors. People like to point out what they um, what they will call errors. Um, um, discrepancies or contradictions within the Bible—these are not so. And with every discrepancy or contradiction that anybody has ever shown me, all it took was reading in the in the in the uh, basically the context to find out. Okay, so. This isn't even related to that, much less being a contradiction. And so that's, that's usually very helpful. Um, the only other time that, that I know of contradictions that, that people bring up, and it takes a little bit of research or at least some thought, um, is in the Gospels. You, you know, you're know, you telling the same story four times, but you're telling it from, from you know, four different vantage points. Um, and so sometimes there's a story here that in, an, in another passage, it's up here or it's down here, or it's some other way. Uh, A lot of times you take, like Matthew, Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the whole sermon in in one place, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. You go to Luke, and Luke has some of it all in one place, but he has other parts of the the sermon scattered all throughout the gospel. And people say, well, see, most likely Luke is right, and Matthew just kind of made a greatest hits. Well, who's to say that Jesus didn't stand in one place, or actually the Bible says sit in one place and teach the whole thing at one time, but he also used the same material and it spoke to people at different times. Anything worth teaching once is worth teaching again. And so very likely Jesus said some of the same things to different people in different settings and occasions. And that's the way that Luke presented it. That's the way God inspired Luke to present it. And what that helps us to do is gives us some idea of many different ways that God's word can be applied. So, People like to look at issues in the Bible, and and I would say that there are no issues in the Bible. So there are a couple of things that Baptists say about the Bible specifically, Uh, and these things we kind of have to go over. Um, I won't spend forever on it. In fact, I promise I'll spend less than 18 minutes on the rest of this. Um, The Bible is authoritative. That means that it has authority that it is the final word on things. Now, when Christians disagree, when they're presented with a clear and correctly interpreted Bible verse, the disagreement should be over. It should be. Now, there are times where it's not. And and in fact, most of the time it's probably not. But when Christians disagree... Now, this can get kind of difficult. Husband and wife disagree, and one spouse brings out a Bible verse and says, See... This is what the Bible says. That gets very difficult very quick. It requires some humility. It requires some patience. It requires usually some distance. Uh, um, But what it does at the end of the day is is it shows that there is a desire for um, there to be one standard, one authority. And so whether it be in a marriage, whether it be in a church, whether it be in a group of friends, in, in whatever you know social construct you have, there should be one authority, and that be the Word of God. So the, the Word of God should be the authority. So if a person has a question and they say, so why should we do this? If the Bible clearly says we should do it, then we should do it, and that should settle that conversation. It is the authority, and that's, that's the point. A lot of times... People like to look at other things as authorities. They, they like to look, for example, uh, and let me, let me just, just kind of revisit something. Use simple verses to interpret complex verses. Use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Don't use anything else to interpret the Bible. Don't use any philosophy of mankind. Don't use any trends that are going on in the world. Don't use any social movement that's happening. Use the Bible, to interpret the Bible. You'll always be right. If you use anything else to interpret the Bible, you'll pretty much always be wrong. Just remember, the Bible is authoritative enough all by itself. We do not need anything else. Now, if the Bible says that you should do something, that is law. If the Bible says you should not do something, that is law. We have to understand that it is authority for our lives, it is authority for our churches, and it is authority for everything else. The Bible is infallible, which means that it cannot fail. Uh, the Bible was sent out for a purpose. In fact, your your um, your, your book here says that um, uh, Isaiah 5511, uh, or references Isaiah 5511, that the Bible, God's word, will always accomplish its purposes. He sends it out, it will do what it's supposed to do, and it will come back. This is another comfort for those of you, uh, myself included, that are responsible for teaching the Bible. I haven't met a whole lot of people that are... Proud enough to say, you know what? I'm a great Bible teacher. I can make people believe anything. I've not met many people that do that. And in fact, you know, especially in small churches, we teach, but we we know that we are limited. We know that we're human. We know that, that there is so much that we don't know. But here's the wonderful comfort God's word will not fail. You may not be the best teacher. You may not know everything there is to know. But if you stick to the word of God, it will not fail. It will do what it's supposed to do. That is a powerful thought because we don't always feel qualified. And, and I'll, I'll give you a little secret. We're not qualified. I had another college professor that's, that um, he was trying to ground us, humble us, and, and, and you know maybe even fuss at us a little bit. Um, this is Dr. Taylor. Um, you, you know him. Um, he, he, t- he said, you aren't qualified to be a janitor in the smallest church in America. And that's what he was telling us. Because we're not qualified. We're not deserving of that position. We, we are not um, of our own merit good enough to teach the Bible, to, to be God's spokesman on earth. We are not. But the Word of God itself will not fail. Stick to the word of God. Stick to the word of God. Uh, that's, an, a very, that's a very, very important thing. Um, so um, we, we, must be, we must be careful about fear and anxiety um, because we, we might know that we are not worthy and we are not um, good enough, but God's word is. Um, the next one, the Bible is inerrant. Um, which that means that there are no errors. We kind of already covered that. I'm not going to kind of circle back around over and over on that, um, but this, this was a pretty major uh, point of contention for quite a long time in Southern Baptist circles. Um, now uh, we have different fights, uh, but I still believe that it stems from the very same thing. Uh, may, maybe this time it's authoritative instead of inerrant, but I think that we still struggle understanding the Word of God. Um, and understanding its role in the church. Um, so, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, "Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Um, when we read the Bible, it is true, regardless of what the word is telling you. Um, you know, if you if you heard the sermon uh, this this Sunday, um, I mentioned the fact that the heart is deceitful above all things, and if you're uh, heart is telling you something. Most likely the one thing you need to tell your heart is to shut up. Uh, and I think that's a reality that we have to know is that we don't need to listen to our heart. We need to listen to the Word of God. The Word of God is not going to mislead us. It is true. It will never lead us wrong. But our hearts will. Our hearts can and our hearts will. Um, this is an area, this next idea, is, is, a, is an area that sometimes... Uh, I think we all will, will struggle. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is all we need. If you've ever went through a difficult time, and I know all of us have, you've probably reached out to God. God, give me a sign. God, give me a word. God, give me an answer. Help me know what I need to do. What we would love is for God to, you know, give us a, a, an experience like Gideon had with the fleeces. Or better yet, give us an experience like Moses did with the burning bush. We would love the handwriting on the wall. We would love anything that told us word for word, Adam, what you're supposed to do next is dot, 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 fill in those blanks. That's what we would love. The word of God is sufficient. Don't go out looking for answers when God has already provided the answers. So, here's the reality. Most of our lives, we're not going to know exactly what God has for us next. But we can know exactly the words that God wants to use to guide us next. That's enough. God's word is sufficient. That is enough. Now, there are other things that this speaks to. Um, You know, the reality is... um, I like devotions, but you don't need them. God's Word is enough. I obviously don't have a problem with books. Well, actually, Amanda would say, I do have a problem with books. I like books. I have a lot of books. I have them physically. I have them digitally. I have them running out of my ears. But you don't need books. You need God's Word. Everything else is extra. God's Word is sufficient. We don't need someone to have died and gone to heaven and come back and told us about heaven. We don't need somebody to have died and gone to hell and come back and told us about hell. From what I read in scripture, that's a one-way ticket, whichever way you go. And so what we need to understand is that God has told us what hell is like. And he's also told us what will send us there. And he's told us the one thing that will keep us from going there. God has told us all we can know about heaven. It it, it goes beyond what humans can comprehend. It goes beyond what linguistically we can explain. God's told us all that we can know about heaven. And he's told us how to get there. And so we don't need extra revelation to help us understand what God has already told us. His word is sufficient. His word is also eternal, eternal. There is a trend um, in American church culture today. Uh, maybe, maybe you've probably you've all heard of Charles Stanley. Uh, well, you know if you know, but his son Andy Stanley is also. Um, he talks on TV and standing in front of people. Um, he said that we should unhitch from the Old Testament. Um, I'm sure that could be taken a lot of ways, but any way that you take it, that's wrong. God's word is eternal. We preached this past Sunday that we have died to the law. That doesn't mean that we ignore the law or that we think that it is now not applicable. It means that we are not under the penalty of the law. We still live by the word of God. What God said is still righteous, What God said is still the pattern for our lives, but we're not under the penalty of the law anymore because we are in grace. We are in Christ, so we have this new life. The Word of God is not going to change. It's not going to get old. It's not going to go out of style. Let me tell you, as old as this book is, if it was ever going to go out of style, it would have already went out of style. But when you read the pages of the Bible today, it is just as relevant. There's never been a time, at least in my opinion in history, where you've read the Bible and you've been like, yes, the world is exactly like God says that it should be. Instead, we read the Bible and we say, wow, this is exactly opposite to the way that the world is living. And that is when the Bible is relevant, is when it is opposite to the way that the world is living, because then we proclaim the truth. We proclaim what the world should be like. We proclaim how people should live. Then we can see that it is it is good for teaching. It is good for rebuke. It is good for correction. It is good for training in righteousness. And it is good for equipping the man of God for the works of righteousness. We know then that the word of God is active. It is living because it is always current. It is eternal. It will never be out of date. It never goes stale it is always exactly what we need to hear at any given time. Um, uh, A.T. Robertson, I missed this. This was a couple of pages back. Um, A.T. Robertson uh, quite literally wrote the book on Greek grammar. Um, he also wrote the book on how to preach a good sermon. Um, but um, what, we, what we, he says here on page 14 in the margin, he says, I've been studying preaching, teaching, and writing about the New Testament for over 50 years. But I never opened my Greek New Testament without finding something I had never before seen in it. Um, You might sometimes feel bad when you read a passage that you should know and it, it jumps out at you in a different way. Don't ever feel bad. Feel blessed. Feel blessed that God has shown you a new nuance to that. Um, I've heard people describe the Bible as like a, a diamond and you know I don't know if this is how they occur in nature but when you you see them like in a jewelry store they got all these different sides to them They're they're just multifaceted I guess you would say and every way you turn it you can look at it a little differently and see you're still looking at the same diamond but you're looking at it from a different angle and the truth about the Bible is as we live our lives we go from one stage and phase in our life or season in our life to a whole different season And we needed that verse when we were young, and and, and we still need that verse when we're old. And it's speaking to us differently when we're old than when we're young, and it speaks to us differently when we're in the Middle Ages. It, It takes us all the way through our life, and what we see in Scripture is that God has made it in such a way that it constantly communicates with us year after year. Something's always new about it. Something's always different about it. And God blesses us by revealing it to us as we can understand it. And so always be encouraged in that. So that is what we believe about the Bible. Um, I would say um, that when the Baptist faith and message was first written, that was not unique. Um, but I would suggest to you today that there are very few denominations that would have as, as deep and robust a statement about Scripture as Baptists still maintain. Um, most people need the flexibility to be able to accept things um, that the world demands we accept at this state. Uh, we do not. Uh, Baptists do not accept the things that society says we must accept. Uh, we don't affirm things that we don't agree with. Uh, and it's not us and our opinions. It's ultimately what Scripture says. We do not accept what Scripture does not permit. Questions? Questions? So, that's what we believe about the Bible. Um, We'll get into more things next week. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time to uh, take a few minutes just to talk about the Bible, to talk about what what it is, what your word is. We know that you have, in the words of Scripture, you have introduced yourself to us. We can't know everything there is to know about you. Not even if we were students of Scripture for our whole life. Not even if we memorized every word. We wouldn't know everything there is to know about you. But because of your word, what we do know, we are sure that it's true. Because you have given us a true word from you. Also, when we read this, this book, this collection of books, we see in it one message. The message is that even though we have fallen, even though we have sinned, you have still found a way to redeem us. Father, that message lifts our hearts even on the darkest of days. And Father, I pray that you would help us to always remember that your word is a word of salvation. It is a word of truth and it is an everlasting word. Let us never grow weary of studying your word. We know that it will be like new to us every day that we open it up, every day that we study it. And so I pray that we will be faithful to spend every day for the rest of our lives digging into your word and seeing what you have to tell us today. Because, Lord, we get a lot of information, but none of it, none of it is as important to us as what you have to say to us. So as Jesus was so often saying, those that have ears, let them hear. I pray that we will always have the ears to hear your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.